0: Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 1, Episode 9, Shoot. In the heat of a midsummer morning, Betty Draper stands outside her ossining home, a cigarette dangling between her lips, a rifle in hand. Her calm demeanor quickly turns resolute. A vengeful look flashes in her eyes as she aims at a flock of birds circling overhead. The pop of several shots punctuates the repeated cries from the Draper's hysterical neighbor. Mad Men's ninth episode, Shoot, is keenly focused on Betty. It was written by Chris Provenzano and showrunner Matthew Weiner, both of whom are well-known to us at this point, and was directed by Paul Faig. Though this would be Fagg's first and only episode of Mad Men, he's well-known for creating the show Freaks and Geeks, and for directing episodes of The Office, Nurse Jackie, and Arrested Development. The episode title, Shoot, is a reference to its final scene, but it also alludes to its main story which centers around Betty doing photo shoots as a model for Coca-Cola. Moreover, I think we can view shoot as an exclamation of regret, because shoot is an episode about motherhood, remorse, and missed opportunities. You see, Betty arrives at that final scene after a morning of routine housework. She prepares breakfast, sees Don off to work, does laundry, and sits in her kitchen, smoking a cigarette as she listens to the radio. These scenes were intentionally filmed to mirror the old-fashioned commercials of the time, ones that targeted housewives through idealized depictions of mundane chores. This romantic portrayal of Betty's life rings hollow, though, because while sitting for dinner the preceding night, Betty tells Don that she wants to stop modeling. She claims she prefers to stay at home, and Don supports her decision. He's kind in this scene, as he expresses his love for her and describes her importance to both him and the Draper children. Remember that Episode 8, The Hobo Code, introduced more details about Don's upbringing he was raised in poverty, on a farm, by an adopted stepmother who never wanted him. In The Hobo Code, the younger Dick Whitman describes himself as a whore child. So when Don describes Betty, gentle, kind, nurturing, it feels sincere. This isn't Don manipulating her. It's a genuine admiration he holds for Betty. She's pure, angelic, and sweet. The kind of mother that Don never had. And Madman has intentionally portrayed her this way even emphasizing the color white in her clothing to highlight her innocence. But though Betty feigns acceptance, it's clear that giving up the glamorous world of modeling isn't her choice. She's been fired that afternoon by Coca-Cola and its advertising agency McCann Erickson. She holds back tears as she's told that Coca-Cola has decided it wants a model who's more Audrey Hepburn than Grace Kelly. And Don knows this. He's spoken with McCann's executive, Jim Hobart, just moments before Betty's last photo shoot. Knowing that Betty has been intentionally let go makes the dinner especially awkward, as both she and Don fail to acknowledge that she's been fired. We've discussed repression and words left unsaid throughout the arc of season one, and few examples portray this better than Don's dinner with Betty. Brilliant shot sequencing is again powerful in conveying the falseness of their conversation. Just before the dinner, we see Don lament his wife's mistreatment as Betty's brought to tears. Both Don and Betty know that McCann has manipulated her, but confronting that reality wouldn't be typical of the 1960s, or of the Draper's marriage. But despite her helpless tears, Madman suggests that Betty is somewhat relieved. She's a beautiful woman, with modeling experience and a portfolio of photos. But Betty seems unable to stomach the rejection common in the modeling business. She describes New York as harsh, and says it would be silly for her to run around chasing work like younger, unmarried women she opts instead for the safety of a quaint suburban life at home. Women of the time often associated staying at home with social status. By the 1960s, staying at home was only an option for some well-off upper and middle-class women. In Betty's world, being a housewife meant that she had married a wealthy man. It indicated comfort that she no longer had to struggle with the cruelty of the working world. Contrast this with Don who faces risk and rejection every day. He arrived at home that evening after rejecting McCann's attempt to hire him away from Sterling Cooper. During their call, Don looks at a set of Betty's modeling photos. He tells Jim Hobart that he's staying with Sterling Cooper, and admonishes him for manipulating Betty. Jim laments losing them both, and he insists that Betty is a special woman. Don warns that involving his family in their business was unprofessional. It's fun to see Don struggle with power wielded against him. So much of Mad Men portrays him driving the action bullying coworkers, manipulating clients. He's often the aggressor, seemingly unscrupulous about how he does business. But Shoot shows Don grappling against other powerful, self-interested men. Hobart is played by H. Richard Green, an experienced actor with previous roles in shows like The West Wing. He's the wealthy head of rival ad agency McCann Erickson, a real-life firm that handled clients like Coca-Cola and Exxon. Hobart operates with cutthroat tactics, He's underhanded and seems to eschew ethical boundaries. I think the Jim Hobart character is important symbolically. Through Hobart, Mad Men casts Don as an underdog. He's the small fish in a big pond, full of sharks, inviting him to swim with them. Hobart is a sort of ominous corporate overlord, and through him, McCann's presence looms, a threat to swallow up Don, Betty, and even Sterling Cooper. But for now, Sterling Cooper operates unchanged. Don and Roger leave the office, ignoring a fight that's broken out between Pete Campbell and Ken Cosgrove. Seeing Peggy, Ken jokes about the weight she's gained. Our brother works at the exchange. They call a girl like her a lobster. All the meat's in the tail. Oh. <laughs> Pete stews over Ken's words for a moment before he grabs him and punches him in the face. Paul Kinsey breaks them up as the rest of the office gasps in shock. Campbell, you sucker punched me. What is wrong with you? You just had a fight, and I I was not part of it. Either you two make up, or I do not stand a chance tonight. Fans of the show have sometimes called this moment surprising. Pete's been so dismissive of Peggy throughout Season 1 that it's hard to believe he'd defend her honor. But Matthew Weiner has stated that Pete isn't really thinking of Peggy at this moment. He's not defending her. This is about Pete's ego, that he slept with the ugly girl at the office. Peggy's weight gain is a recurring motif in Shoot, the first episode to call out her weight as problematic. Costume designer Janie Bryant designed a series of fat suits for Peggy to wear during Season 1. Mad Men's makeup artists use prosthetics to make her face and neck look larger. But until now, Peggy's weight gain hasn't been explicitly mentioned in the show's writing. But Shoot changes that, with Joan and other cast members all contributing. Before leaving for the day, Peggy finds Joan in the break room. She returns a dress, but Joan insists she keep it. Joan suggests Peggy pay more attention to her appearance, but by now, Peggy has a different idea about how to succeed at Sterling Cooper. She tells Joan that she's not concerned if men find her unattractive, that she's succeeding because of her writing. Peggy, you are falling prey to a very common situation for new girls. I'm not new anymore. Well, that's just it. Don't you want to do well here? I'm the first girl to do any writing in this office since the war. Marge told me. Writing? Is that what this is about? I thought you were doing that to get close to Paul. Remember that Joan functions as an intermediate between Peggy and Betty, She's a working girl without the husband or status to live at home, but she's clearly striving for a life like Betty's. And despite her blunt delivery, her advice for Peggy is always motivated by this idea. I heard you were being considered for an account because a client's wife saw you and thought it would be okay if he worked with you. You know, you're not a stick. And yet I never wonder what men think of me. You are hiding a very attractive young girl with too much lunch. I know what men think of you. That you're looking for a husband, and you're fun, and not in that order. It's easy to mistake Joan's sentiment here, but as Peggy looks at Joan, she senses what actresses Elizabeth Moss and Christina Hendricks have stated all along. This isn't some petty jealousy. Joan isn't trying to be intentionally callous. She's trying to help. I just realized something. You think you're being helpful. I am trying, dear. Just before the fight breaks out, Don stands in his office and opens a package from Jim Hobart. He flips through pictures from Betty's Coca-Cola photo shoot. Disgusted by this, he sets down the photos and heads to Roger's office, where he asks for a raise with no contract. Roger asks what's in it for him, but Don promises not to leave for another ad agency. If I leave, he says, it won't be for more advertising. Earlier that day, Harry, Paul, and Pete sit in Don's office and compliment his success with Lucky Strike. Roger and Bert Cooper barge in, exclaiming that someone has purchased TV commercial placements for c laxatives. Bert asks who's responsible, and Harry immediately admits to the scheme. Pete eventually shares blame, expecting to be fired. But Cooper laughs with glee and congratulates them both. He says that the purchases have blocked John Kennedy's presidential campaign, who will have to place ads on the radio instead. Sterling also lauds their brilliance, saying, I didn't know you had it in you. After their meeting, the boys laugh in Pete's office as they celebrate their success. Pete invites his secretary, Hildy, to have a drink, but she refuses. Pete grows angry and embarrasses Hildy, offended that she won't celebrate his victory. But the boys continue to celebrate outside Pete's office as the workday wraps up. Sally enters the draper's bedroom the preceding night, sobbing as Betty moves to comfort her. She tells Don and Betty that their neighbor threatened to shoot her dog, Polly, after it grabbed one of his pigeons. Don sits up angrily, but Betty insists that she'll handle the situation. Don reassures Sally that nothing will happen to Polly. A few hours earlier, Don lays on his living room sofa, watching television when Betty arrives at home. She quickly puts together some chicken wings for dinner, which Sally refuses to eat. Betty talks effusively about the Coca-Cola photoshoot, while Don listens, smiling. That afternoon, Sally and Bobby play in the Draper's front yard. Their babysitter, Ethel, sleeps on the couch. The children watch as their neighbor's pigeons fly overhead. Polly suddenly leaps up and grabs one of the birds in her mouth. No! No! Polly, no! Let her go! If I see that dog in my yard again, I'm gonna shoot it. Meanwhile, Betty Draper is on set for her first Coca-Cola shoot. A green screen stands behind her as she kneels over a picnic with a handsome man, two children, and an Irish setter. She smiles, holding a bottle of soda and taking instructions from McCann's art director, Ronnie Gittridge. Madman so skillfully uses these otherwise unnoticeable moments to convey disillusionment. The juxtaposition of Betty's life as a housewife against her role-playing on set introduces an aspect of tragic irony. It helps us see a fuller picture than Betty can understand in the moment. Her modeling idealizes the same family life that's driven her to loneliness and boredom. But modeling doesn't bring Betty the happiness she craves. Like so many of Mad Men's stories, this is one of desire unfulfilled. And it stems from Betty's inability to confront her authentic feelings. She doesn't long for accomplishment or attention in general. She craves these things from Don. And in shoot, modeling becomes the most obvious solution to her malaise. But it's not the right one. It reminds me a bit of Roger's monologue in episode 2. Jesus, you know what they want? Everything. Especially if the other girls have it. Trust me, psychiatry is just this year's candy pink stove. just more happiness. We see signs of this from Betty's first scene at McCann, as she sits outside the art department. She looks visibly out of place in the row of younger models, wearing a striped pink and black dress that tapers to a large, pink bow at the chest. The dress evokes the 50s more than the 60s, making it clear that Betty hasn't done this work in years. But art director Ronnie Gittridge assures her he loves the style. The phone rings that evening, and Betty gleefully declares that she's the girl for Coca-Cola. Imbued with confidence, she moves to Don on the couch and seduces him. The scene fades to darkness as he unzips the back of her dress. Earlier that afternoon, Harry and Pete bond over their fraternity days. Pete tells a story about how his fraternity staged a funeral for their house dog during a beauty pageant parade. As Harry laughs, Pete realizes he can use the same tactic to divert attention from Kennedy's presidential campaign. He suggests buying TV commercials in battleground states to diminish Kennedy's presence, and since Sterling Cooper isn't handling Nixon's campaign directly, the two decide to place buys for c laxatives. Peggy, meanwhile, works feverishly at her desk. She drops an eraser on the floor and bends to pick it up, but she recoils upon hearing the loud rip of her skirt splitting down its side. She walks to the break room, a sweater tied around her waist, and finds Joan, Marge, and Lois Sadler. Joan approaches Peggy and offers her a spare dress. Peggy's later shown walking through the office in the ill-fitting dress. Ken and Paul notice and comment on her weight. They speculate that Peggy's success as a writer is going to her head. Pete listens silently. Roger enters Don's office that morning with a set of golf clubs from Jim Hobart. Don plays up his leverage, telling Roger that he hasn't decided what to do yet. Roger reminds Don of the $2,500 bonus and warns about McCann he suggests that Don won't be able to fire ungrateful clients. When Don mentions Pan Am, Roger says that they can land more prominent clients at Sterling Cooper. Much of Shute’s exposition involves Don as more of a secondary voice. He's portrayed throughout the episode as an object, with characters like Jim, Roger, and Betty all vying for him. And so Shute’s dialogue is often driven by others, with Don reacting in short phrases. I think what Mad Men is trying to show is Don sincerely weighing the thought of leaving Sterling Cooper. Allotting him fewer lines suggests that Don doesn't know what he wants to do. He appears open to persuasion throughout the episode, and this creates tension about the future of Sterling Cooper, one that seems so inseparably tied to Don. It's refreshing to see Don cast less as the decisive driver of Mad Men's fate, as someone who still experiences moments of indecision, and it's telling how Don's uncertainty leaves so many characters hanging in the balance. It recalls Burt Cooper's allusion to the people who depend on all our hard work in The Hobo Code, Many of the show's characters truly depend on Don, not just narratively, but his character archetypes. There's a moment in shoot when Pete, Ken, Harry, and Paul discuss Don's leaving the agency and how it would affect them. The conversation is grim. Most doubt the agency's future without him. It's subtle, but it's perhaps the closest Mad Men will come to breaking the fourth wall. Here Sterling Cooper is a metaphor for the show itself. The world of Sterling Cooper is the world of our characters, the world of our show and it would all fall apart if not for its conflicted, central, driving protagonist. This is true for Betty, too. Her life orbits around Don's, around her affection for him and her role in raising his children. And her future as a model is also tied to Don's decision about McCann. Shute's overarching themes about motherhood are rooted in Betty's relationship with Don. The episode disrupts that relationship and offers new possibilities for the Betty Draper character. But much like at Sterling Cooper, Chute leaves Betty's life mostly unchanged. Despite this, Betty's allowed to explore these possibilities, at least momentarily. She sits at the kitchen table one night with Don and announces she wants to start modeling again. Don is at first confused. He notes that Betty hated modeling before she became a housewife. Betty reveals that talking with her psychiatrist, Dr. Arnold Wayne, has made her reconsider. The Sterling Cooper execs sit in the conference room that afternoon. Watching Jackie Kennedy's Spanish-language campaign ad. Queridos amigos, les habla la esposa del senador John F. Kennedy, candidato a la presidencia de los Estados Unidos. En estos tiempos de tanto peligro, cuando la paz mundial se ve amenazada por el comunismo, es necesario tener en la Casa Blanca un líder capaz de guiar nuestros destinos this was unprecedented at the time, one of the first Spanish language ads used in American political campaigns, one meant to target a growing community of Spanish speakers. The room looks on, seemingly unconvinced. Salvatore Romano speculates that women will be jealous of Jackie. Meanwhile, Betty lays in Arnold Wayne's office and remembers her life before marriage. She recalls meeting Don at a photo shoot for a fur company and how Don courted her by giving her a fur coat from the set. She seems intrigued by the offer to model once more, bored with the life she has. Betty seemingly has everything. What's left? To get old and die? The conversation also examines Betty's relationship with her mother. We found out in Lady's room that Betty's mother has recently passed away. In the therapy session, Betty recalls her mother's warnings and criticism. She mentions her weight and how her mother cautioned her not to overeat. That she would get stout. This is a direct quote, one Matthew Weiner often heard from his own grandfather. Madman has previously linked Betty's obsession with age and beauty to her relationship with her mother. Episode 6, Babylon, introduced this when Betty discussed Joan Crawford, saying she would rather die than grow old. And in her therapy session in Shoot, Betty again brings up her mother. She mentions that her mother criticized modeling, equating it with prostitution and suggesting she get married instead. Dr. Wayne asserts that Betty is angry at her mother's judgments, but Betty sits up in denial, irritated by what she sees as an attempt to provoke her. Betty's conversation with Dr. Wayne lays out several challenges, both for her personally and for women of the time. Foremost is the fulfillment question, one which Betty expresses directly. Mad Men portrays many of its women striving to get married, move to the suburbs, and have a family. But Betty has all of these things, yet she still doesn't feel satisfied. It's the same question playing out with other characters, like Roger, Pete, and Don. What truly is happiness? Beyond this is the idea of beauty. It's a motif that recurs throughout this episode, which makes many references to Betty's beauty, comments on Joan's use of her appearance, and shows Peggy judged heavily for her weight. Betty notes the cruel duality of attractiveness, while beauty can bring her opportunities, it also invites judgment. Throughout Shoot, Mad Men presents this as a sort of lose-lose proposition, that while attractiveness is central to women's success, it equally attracts jealousy and resentment. But Shoot is less a societal commentary than a portrayal of Betty's motherhood, and in her therapy session we see how her mother shaped many of her beliefs. We see Betty linking beauty with stories about her mother and about her marriage to Don. She confesses to a struggle with her own weight and appetite. This perhaps motivates concerns Betty has expressed about her own daughter, Sally. In 5G, Betty comments on Sally's weight with Francine. And in Babylon, she shows Sally how to apply lipstick. There's a bit of tragedy in these mother-daughter relationships, that preoccupation with beauty is passed through generations, from Betty's mother, to Betty, to her daughter Sally, and manifests itself in anxiety and confusion. Modeling for Betty is a dream deferred, Before her therapy session, she tidies up the house, setting a BB gun aside as she tells Francine about the previous night. She muses about an Italian fashion designer, the show used Emilio Pucci as inspiration, that she worked with during college. She excitedly rummages through her closet to try on outfits the designer made for her. That morning, Don finds a package on his desk. He opens it to see a note from Jim Hobart and a membership to the New York Athletic Club. Don phones Jim, who sits in a modern, stylized office at McCann, multiple assistants surrounding him. Jim encourages Don to take a job with McCann, touting clients like Esso, now Exxon, Coca-Cola, and Pan American Airlines. Don thanks him for the gift and hangs up. Just the night before, Don steps into the lobby of the Broadhurst Theater. Located at 235 West 44th Street in Midtown Manhattan, the theater opened in 1917 with George Bernard Shaw's play Miss Alliance, and still hosts performances today. Madman's Theater scene is filmed at the Los Angeles Theater in downtown LA. A fountain stands atop the theater's Grand Central Staircase as Don walks out during the intermission of Fiorello. Drawn from the 1955 novel Life with Fiorello, the musical debuted at the Broadhurst Theater on November 23, 1959. It memorializes former New York City mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, reformer who battled New York's Tammany Hall political machine. Through his work, LaGuardia became one of New York's most beloved mayors. But Don seems unimpressed by Fiorello. He waits alone on the staircase before he's approached by Jim Hobart. Jim mentions that Don's name came up in conversation at the athletic club among New York's elite. He suggests that Don has bided his time long enough, that Sterling Cooper is too small for his talent, and proposes that Don come to work for McCann. When Betty arrives, Jim introduces himself. The two talk as Don heads for the bar with Jim's wife. Betty's dressed elegantly in white to highlight her innocence. Jim tells her that she's beautiful and comments that she looks just like Grace Kelly. Betty admits that she's modeled in the past and Jim gives her a business card mentioning that he's casting a girl to model for Coca-Cola. Don and Betty sit in the car after the performance. She brings up her conversation about the Coca-Cola shoot and asks Don about Jim Hobart. Don warns that Betty shouldn't trust Jim, but Betty tries to rationalize Jim's offer, saying that she's still young and beautiful. Why wouldn't he want her? As Don and Betty drive home, they fail to confront the reality of Jim's offer, that it has nothing to do with Betty at all, that it's simply meant to lure Don to McCann. Betty stands in her front yard one summer afternoon. She trims hedges outside her home, as Bobby and Sally play with their dog, Polly. Pigeons flutter overhead, and Sally shouts to her mother, who stops to look at the birds. She looks over to see her neighbor, Ross, and smiles, waving to him before she continues her day. And that's how Shoot begins, much as it ended, with Betty standing in her front lawn, noticing her neighbor's birds in flight. But Shoot's arc for Betty Draper isn't about modeling. It's about embracing her life and finding fulfillment through motherhood. She's grown from the naive indecisive woman in the episode's opening scene, and the final shot seems like an expression of frustration, defiance, and strength. There are ideas of determinism swirling throughout this episode about how much control we have over our fate. Betty's life has been so vividly impacted by her mother's words about appearance, marriage, and family. Lines like, you're going to get stout, were passed down. Even the story about the pigeons comes from an actual anecdote from one of the show's writers. Through this, I think Mad Men points out how significantly our family and upbringing can shape our lives. The episode casts Don Draper in a more supportive role. As McCann attempts to hire him away from Sterling Cooper, we notice how many of the show's characters are tied to him. There's an illusion of control that Shoot exposes by portraying Don this way, and for perhaps the first time, Sterling Cooper's place in that advertising business is settled. This is just the introduction, though. Competing agencies will loom throughout the rest of the series. Physical beauty is a recurring motif throughout Shoot, and costume design was critical in this episode. Betty Draper goes through 14 costume changes alone. Peggy Olsen's progressive fat suits were vital to making her weight gain story believable. With Shoot, Mad Men demonstrates how complicated beauty could be for women in the 1960s, and perhaps how superficially they were treated by society. After an episode that ends where it started, It's easy to feel like our series is going in circles, but there's significant character development happening in shoot, particularly for Don, Betty, and Peggy. And for perhaps the first time, Don's past motivates a positive emotion. The admiration he expresses for Betty as a mother is one of his more heartfelt moments so far. Even Pete and Harry get a chance to shine positively in this episode through their work for the Nixon campaign. Mad Men is laying the stage for several larger narratives that will finish out its first season. But throughout the series, and especially in episodes like Shoot, I'm reminded how it feels less like Mad Men is telling me a story than revealing one. The show doesn't charge ahead the way you'd expect from a television drama. It instead slowly strips back layers of its world, using its storytelling to motivate its characters. And that non-linear storytelling is the brilliance of the show, because it removes the predictability of most series and we never quite know if we're watching a new beginning, a culmination, or a resolution. In our next episode, we'll pick up with more of Sterling Cooper's leading men, because it's Labor Day weekend, the Nixon campaign is heating up, and Don and Roger are about to get themselves into trouble. Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd like to encourage you to follow us to be notified when new episodes arrive. I'd also encourage you to leave us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also contact me with any feedback at Podcast at gmail.com. I'll leave a link in the episode description.